0: On today's episode, we'll be covering the interoperability we don't talk about, which is pretty ironic because we're going to talk about it. <laughs> so, and be sure to follow the show on Twitter at the hashtag HITSM and our personal accounts at TechGuy and at Colin underscore Hung. Plus, check out our 15 years of Health IT blog content at healthcareittoday.com. Are we going to be speaking the unspoken today? Is that
1: <laughs> it's kind of, we're, I guess you can, you could also kind of call it, we're exploring the underbelly of uh interoperability, yeah, it's <laughs> but the uh, other sections. It's good, exactly. <laughs> it's like the B side of you know, of the old uh,
0: <laughs> the B team uh, interoperability <laughs> <the> B squad. <laughs>
1: oh man, no, it's gonna be this will be interesting. You know, it's the first, it's the first episode of 2021, and uh, you know, we're. Unfortunately, still talking about interoperability and it's 2021 (laughs) and we still haven't gotten there yet, but, but I, I guess we're making some progress, which is kind of what we're talking about today.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that, like I was having a discussion with someone, can we ever really solve interoperability? My answer is no, like you can't fully, you know, like at least in probably in our lifetimes or, you know, at least in my work lifetime, <laughs> like, you know, you're not going to solve everything where all the data is available everywhere, just the way everyone would love it to be. And we all know it should be, but can we have specific interoperability that covers, you know, 90% of the cases. Yeah, we, we should, right? You know, but we'll never have ubiquitous sharing of data across all the disparate healthcare organizations. No,
1: but I think most people would be content with the level that the banking and the financial systems have been able to share data, right? Like, sure, I can't move my mortgage data from one bank to another super seamlessly, right? But I can get my uh, deposit information, my checking account balance, no matter what system I'm using, right? If I'm at an ATM, I can get the amount, whether I'm using like a QuickBooks or a FreshBooks or something, like I can get it. So, but that covers, as you said, like 90% of what most people want right? I want to be able to pay a bill, see my balances, do some stuff. And, you know, if we can get there in healthcare, I think most people will go, okay, this is enough for me. (laughs) And uh, yeah, keep going. But, but this is enough to, to kind of achieve the, the goals of interoperability that unfortunately governments have, have uh, stepped in and tried to, um, tried to regulate.
0: I mean, Um, your example is super interesting because what we're doing in healthcare is we're telling the banks, Hey, when you change accounts, checking accounts from Chase to Bank of America, I want you to take all of my transaction history and import it into the new bank. Like, in what world would a bank say, sure, I'll do that, you know? And, and yet, and for obvious reasons, we want that in healthcare, right? We, we need that in healthcare because that history really matters. Whereas your transaction history in banking doesn't matter as much, or if it does matter, like a business, you know, obviously it matters to a business, you export it, like you said, to a QuickBooks or, or, you know, a Wave or some other external system. So you have a history, but the new bank doesn't give a rip about it. And you don't care if the new bank has it either. So it is interesting, that balance.
1: It is. I mean, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's the what people are able to do, I mean, banks didn't start off this way, right? We evolved to this point where now, okay, here's all the basic, and yeah. you know, p- pillars, as I call it, you know, can I pay a bill? Can I, can I, um, you know, see my deposits in my, in my transactions? Can I, you know, see some other, uh, do some other financial things like, you know, uh, 401k information. I can see my mortgage balances. Those are things that, you know, are the basics, right? But, you know, I can't, for example, necessarily apply for a really complicated loan uh, online yeah. still, right? I still have to go in and see, a, a, see somebody about that. And that's, that's okay because, Again, like that's maybe ten percent of the things I need to do. So, uh, I I hope we get there, but uh, unfortunately, right now it's it feels like the government is actually having to step in and push the industry, which is kind of the first uh, thing I wanted to ask you about, John. So we know that uh, as of Jan one, the new health pricing transparency uh, rule from is now going to come into play. I mean, uh, AHA and everyone else lost the, uh, the, the, the stay that they were hoping to get. And so it uh, looks like everyone's gonna f- go ahead and forge ahead with uh, enforcing that rule or requiring uh, organizations to publish their uh, pricing. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Is that, uh, was that sort of, do you think it was actually reasonable for them to ask for a delay or do you think, hey, this was like way overdue anyways?
0: Well, I I think they actually both have a, a sincere point. The AHA is right when they say, yeah, publishing this could actually confuse patients more than it actually helps them. And the HHS is right. that says patients need more power when it comes to understanding what they're going to have to pay. So, you know, they both have strong arguments. Uh, you know, the interesting thing is based on what's in the rule, will patients really benefit from what's being get, going to be have to be published by these hospitals and health systems My answer is not really because they're going to look at it and they're just going to be more confused because there's always so many other layers of complexity. How much deductible do you have? You know, does the hospital have its own pricing negotiated with the payer? Have you negotiated? Has your employer negotiated something different? Are you paying out of pocket or do you even have insurance? Do you have multiple insurance? I mean, like the layers just, you know, really get hard and, and I'm just touching on a few of them, but, uh, you know, I think it is a good thing. And I don't think it's overbearing to the point that uh, AHA, I think, made the argument for that the hospitals can't do this. Uh, you know, it's sad that it's not going to provide the value that we all want because I think we all agree, like, pricing transparency could be beneficial. But, you know, is this going to be the solution to that interoperability problem, right? So we're talking interoperability where, you know, health grades could go on those the, each of those websites and say, hey, here's how much it's going to cost for you to go across all these different providers. No, that there's just too many other complexities there. But I will say it is a step forward in saying, hey, this is important to us. So I think that's valuable. And then the second thing that is valuable is it's going to expose the complexity <laughs> of healthcare billing to the point where hopefully we'll say, can we make this simpler?
1: Yeah, I think you have to have a uh, tax degree, right? In order to understand uh, medical billing, <laughs> yeah, but you need uh,
0: like three tax degrees <laughs> something.
1: yeah, and, and and I think I agree with you totally on that, John. I, I don't think it will achieve the goals of I'll call it the traditional interoperability. I don't think this really pushes the envelope in terms of you know, sharing data or anything like that. but, I think what it will do is highlight the problem in a much more public way. Um, not that it was hidden before, but now it's gonna be a lot easier for, um, frankly, the mainstream press to kind of start doing some comparisons and going, how come Mayo Clinic you know, publishers it this way? And how come Cleveland Clinic does not it this way? And how come there's like all these different extras that this one is showing, this one isn't, right? And is this really the price or is it not the price? So you're gonna to start to see more of those stories which I think will help push our industry towards standardized pricing, at least in terms of public publishing it. <laughs> maybe not standardized pricing overall, but at least the way we publish it and the way we describe it will start to become standardized. Which is a first step to getting true price interoperability, right? Because you can imagine one day where somebody, maybe a payer, um, maybe a a a, 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 um, a SaaS company would be able to go to every single one of these sites and like you kind of compare insurance premiums today, you could go into this site and say, Hey, I need a hip replacement. What's the five prices nearest to me. And then this thing, you know, this app or whatever would go off and be able to query, you know, the different systems and bring back your price. Um, But that would require a level of interoperability that's not there yet. Right. We're, We're at the first step of, well, first of all, you have to publish it. Yeah. next step is simplify it and then you can make it interoperable. So, but I, I agree. I think it's the first necessary step to getting there.
0: Yeah. You're right about the mainstream press going to have a heyday just poaching the prices they find interesting. And But I, I think to your point, it will highlight the absurd complexity <laughs> around how to price these things. I just think of a University of Utah health center where they made a huge effort to say, how much does this even cost us? And it's the only organization I know, and I'm sure there's others, I just haven't heard of them, but, you know, that said, how much does it even cost us? Like, so, okay. you know, most healthcare organizations have no idea what a procedure actually costs them. Right. You know, it, it's kind of this something and they, they take some, you know, whatever the insurance company will pay them and they, they go with it. Right. right. <laughs> and so Medicare maybe has set the price more than anyone else. Uh, oh, yeah, know, I, int- that would be interesting.
1: I think so, and you bring up an interesting point there because will the price transparency actually influence internal behavior, staff behavior, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I would I would hazard a guess that most staff do not know what the hospital charges uh, for a procedure. Yeah. And if they all of a sudden start to see their own pricing up there and realize, oh my goodness, we're charging this, either it's either too low or too high, right? <laughs> And they realize, and they realize, oh, you know, all that extra stuff that I've been doing, maybe I shouldn't do that, right? Because look how much we're charging patients for this thing. <laughs> like, it's it's crazy. So, um, you know, hope, hopefully that happens too, right? Because I think, you know, I think obviously the clinicians err on the side of caution, right? They, they right. order the extra tests they order the extra um, the materials that they need, and it makes sense. But... I think well, if you're now practice,
0: pr- lawyers have made that, you know, <laughs> the reality. Unfortunately. That is the
1: reality. Right. But, but at least, you know, maybe they'll drive some changes in internal behavior too. When you all of a sudden see your own prices published out there.
0: It is interesting. If we look at the patient behavior uh, and, you know, when I looked at this and saw that the, uh, you know, a, that it was a delay in the, you know, or that they, they lost the lawsuit and it wasn't going to be delayed the price transparency. Alan Shoebridge said something really interesting. And he said, from the patient perspective, the other problem is that you usually don't know you need to price shop until you know, you need the service. And generally you need the service right away. So, you know, like if, if you discover that I have an appendicitis and that I need an appendectomy, I don't really have time to go, oh, let me go see which hospital that has the cheaper price. So, you know, that's a hard thing to change in the behavior wise. Now, there are other exceptions, right? When you have cancers or different things, you, you may go and do some price shopping. And you see, oh, Mayo Clinic is the same price as it is in, you know, Podunkville Hospital that I live next to, right? Like, uh, why don't I just fly out to Mayo Clinic and get the highest quality? So I think that will be interesting over time as well.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, the analogy that I've been thinking about in relation to patient behavior to healthcare, it's almost like hailing a taxi while it's raining, right? Like <laughs> when it's raining, like if you imagine the taxi industry is the healthcare industry and you go, okay, each taxi has a different price, but if, you, if you're if you on the street and it's raining and you need to get a to, from A to B, which is how most of us use healthcare, do you really care how much that cab is going to charge you at that no. moment? The answer is no, I need a cab, I need to get there, Right. And so I think you're right, in the in the short term, price transparency, although interesting, is not really gonna change a lot of behavior at the start. I think there may be some where it's an elective, uh, you can wait, um, you know, for those people uh, in, in those situations, maybe uh, having the price information may influence a decision. But I think for the majority of us, it's really more okay, I now am less shocked, maybe, because <laughs> I can see the price I'm gonna get charged or may get charged. And so now when I get in and go in, I can I have an idea, but it still won't stop me from going to that one hospital that's closest to me because I need the
0: care right away. Do you think that price transparency is going to stop some patients from getting care because they go see the price and they're like, "Oh, I'm not paying that," and then the real price was actually ten times less? So, you know, it's a tenth of what was listed. It was supposed to be ten thousand. It's only a thousand. A thousand they would have gotten, it. but ten thousand they just didn't even go in. I, I, hopefully, I don't. I don't think it's going to be that good a data that's going to make it to the patients. So probably not. But that would be scary as well.
1: Yeah, I just I just think it's it's going to take a, a bit of time to incorporate um, pricing into everyday healthcare decisions. I mean, let we've had it for a long time. Frankly, in the in the dentistry world, right? We've had it in a lot of, in those other areas. And how often do you use price as the predominant factor to determine where you're going to go get your teeth cleaned? Right? It's it is a factor. I mean. It, Unlike regular healthcare, but it's not the biggest factor, right? It's more: is it a convenient time? Do they have the ability to book online? You know, do I like the 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 lounge area? Right. Uh, well, it's usually
0: have- after the fact too, right? Like I go to the dentist one time, and then I'm like, oh wait, you charge that? Never mind, I'm gonna go find someone else, right? right. So, it's not you know, and that's something you need ongoing, which in many times in healthcare, it's a one and done type of situation. Hey, if
1: you're just tuning in, you're listening to Healthcare IT Today with John Lynn and Colin Hung. And today, we're talking about the interoperability we don't talk about. <laughs> we're exploring the underside of interoperability. So John, we just we talked about uh, price transparency, which is kind of a form of interoperability that we don't really talk about in the context of interoperability usually. But there's another form of interoperability that we don't really give a lot of airtime to, and that's what I call interoperational data interoperability. Because when we think about interoperability, a lot of people will immediately go to the patient record, the clinical data, how do we make that interoperable? But something that the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted is there's a level of operational data that we might wanna share like bed availability, ICU capacity, ventilator availability, all these kinds of things are elements of data that would be amazing uh, if we could share that in a, in a in a standardized way
0: definitely and i think this was highlighted by a project that you know our friend uh m- more familiarly known as motorcycle guy on twitter but uh, keith boone uh, from audacious inquiry and his efforts with the saner project which was taking like all of this covid related data like icu beds ventilators and how many are in use etc all of that data that pre-COVID, no one cared about, (laughs) let's be honest. like No one was looking into it, no one gave a rip. And and I think the Saner Project has a a bigger vision beyond just those things and saying, what are the things we need to know in any emergency situation? What if a hurricane hits? bed capacity really matters and having that bed capacity shared across an entire population is really important to the population health people. So it's interesting to see them working on it. You know, Talking to some of my interoperability friends about it, they say, yeah, it's a really important problem to solve. It's something that would be really useful, but they also highlight it's a really hard problem to solve as well because that data is often not electronic. It, in many ways, it reminds me of of what it was like saying, hey, let's do clinical interoperability and we all are on paper charts. Like, <laughs> how do you even do that? Like, okay, maybe the EHR wasn't implemented as well as it should be, but at least now it's electronic. So we can change the data, even if the format's not ideal and all that, right? I think we're kind of in that stage for a lot of this bed capacity, ICU capacity, you know, ventilator usage, et cetera, data. You know, we didn't have it electronically or it wasn't, you know, there's certainly no standards formats for those. Uh, So we need to work on those. And I think we will because of COVID.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. I, I agree that it's probably not easy to do today because a lot of hospitals, either this is buried in some system that only a certain group knows or understands, or it's completely manual, right? It's not something they track at all especially ventilator usage, like who's tracking this stuff, right? <laughs> Unless you have an RTLS system or some uh, you know, uh, asset tracking system, you probably don't know these things. Um, but I think like other forms of interoperability that preceded this, like quality data, I'll call it, I mean, that was manually compiled, still manually compiled today, right? Not a lot of, not everyone has the systems that automatically can produce all of the quality data that they're supposed to report to the various levels of government. So I think you can, Uh, achieve a form of interoperability, even though we might not be fully electronic, right? So, you know, yes, you, if you don't have electronic, you have to go to this website and fill it out. uh, And because public health needs it and because we need to know this stuff. And I think that as we just talked about with the uh, price transparency, this may become a driver to go, okay, you know what? Now it's, I hate filling out this form enough that I'm going to go talk to the vendors now and say, Hey, can you automate this? Can we just yank this out of like the EHR system or I an mean, asset tracking system and make this reporting very much easier? Because the one thing I, I will say about the COVID um, pandemic is it has really brought together organizations that were formerly competitors, right? Yeah. Uh, they now realize that, hey, pooling resources is a good thing for our community, So in a, especially in a time of crisis. Uh, And I think there's now a little bit more willingness to share this data. Whereas before, I I don't think it was a secret, but I think also people would not have wanted to share this. Like, I don't want to tell you my bed capacity,
0: right? (laughs) Yeah, they would have been nervous for sure. And I love your example of the best way to to push forward interoperability or automation is to force them to do it manually. (laughs) I think that's one of those eternal truths of automation (laughs) that happens.
1: so true, right? Make make a really bad form, (laughs) put it online and say, okay, you have to fill this in.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And as soon as they do that, they say, can't they do better? And you're like, yeah, there is a better way. Are you ready to embrace it? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Now we can have the conversation. You know, uh, we see that with other data, though, and, and it gets really sticky, though, and that is the SDOH data and being able to share that, you know, I was talking with my wife and, you know, that's my measure of how I know if something's gone mainstream is my wife is talking about it. So she she was talking about, you know, this SDOH data being used to understand patients or, or sorry, I think it was students that could be at risk for committing suicide or, or other types of mental health issues. And they were using all this data Essentially, SDOH mental health data to understand you know what the risk was so that the social workers and etc. could address it in real time. And you know we see the same thing happening in in healthcare. And what's shocking is how much of this data it really is available mm-hmm. from the experience and the you know usually it's the credit card companies that want to understand you and your behaviors. They all have this data, and so it could make a real impact both on the financial side of things for a, a healthcare organization, but also on the clinical side, you know, you know, understanding, okay, I can treat you clinically, but if I don't treat your SDOH issues, your social determinants of health issues, then what's the point of, you know, treating your your health condition because you're just going to be back here next week. So I think those are some interesting areas to be looking for interoperability as well. And it'll be interesting, will people say this is my fiefdom and you don't get this data or are they going to share that data?
1: Yeah, it is really interesting because on one hand you do have commercial entities that have already achieved uh, their own standardization. LexisNexis, uh, Experian, all these people share this information or have it in a way that is shareable. So as you said before, it's electronic. Uh, there is some sort of standard, uh, at least with the company of you know, if you want this data, you pay to access it and then you can have it and it's in this format. And it's a fairly easy to understand format. Now it's a question of how do you incorporate that in a meaningful way? And, and thankfully, there are some companies that are doing this, right? We, we, we know of one, our friends over at ESRI and Dr. Garrity and the work that she does, you know, just taking all this data and putting it on maps. Right. So so any hospital can just do a lookup and say, hey, if you're going to recommend someone go get this um, uh, prescription, how far away are they actually from a uh, pharmacy? Right? You can actually uh-huh. look that up now and see it physically. Uh, there are companies like NowPow that are doing things around SDOH to say, okay, like if you're making a recommendation on a particular uh, a particular um, uh, treatment, can this person actually reach that program via transit that you're recommending? And that data is available in sort of a in, in a standard way through their app. So we're getting there, but you're right, we're not all the way there in a in a standard way, so that anybody can look at this. You have to have specialized applications to be able to pull it, but. But at least some of the publicly public data is available around your financial situation, the socioeconomic information, and you, as you said, the buying behaviors. Um because the credit card companies have done a good job.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they understand you. You know, it's interesting that uh, Change Healthcare made a big push in this. Uh, we did an interview on Healthcare IT Today that you can check out, you know, with this announcement of this new SDOH data platform. And in that interview, the guy came from a background of ad tech. So he was in the advertising <laughs> industry. And, and for him, he, you know, he, he kind of told me, he's like, I was looking at my life and like, what am I doing working with ad tech? You know, how could I have more meaning in my life? Like, and he looked at healthcare and he said, Healthcare's not using all this data that we're using in ad tech. And that would make a difference in these patients' lives. So it was just a really great story about him coming to change healthcare and saying, Let's take all that data we use to to advertise to you effectively, and can we do that to advertise to you effectively what you need to influence your health? And uh, you know, I, I don't think that's quite how Change Healthcare has framed it, but you know, I think that's an interesting way to look at this SDOH data and the way it can impact a patient's life. Uh, the question is, is it going to be shared? The nice thing is, if it's with someone like Change Healthcare or Esri, they're going to make it available to everyone, large organizations, small organizations. So there's not going to be the issue of, oh, only health systems have this data. Anyone can a- get access to that data. And I think that's a good thing. Um, and the only way they're getting it is by sharing. So you know, I think at that level, there is a lot of mutual sharing that happens.
1: Yeah, we, we, you're right. I mean, but I think it's sort of a strange way to back into interoperability, right? Like these companies have done it. They've done the amalgamation of the data into their platform. Now their platform is at least universally available, right? So you can just sign up for Ezra, sign up for Change, sign up for NowPower. And then all of a sudden you've got some level of interoperability because they've done all the work right behind the scenes. Um, But I think, you know, what's interesting for me will be seeing if payers hop on this bandwagon. Um, because they're, they're the ones that presumably would know the most about the individual, the member. Uh, and if they had access, they have access to, obviously to the financial side of the house, because they had to approve you for the policy in the first place. So they have access to all that stuff. Could they combine it and now make it available to any of their pay, any of the providers that they work with, right? To say, mm-hmm. Hey, here's the SCOH data that we have on this member. You can use it in these ways to basically help ensure that whatever treatment you're giving to our member matches their socioeconomic status or matches where they live, right? So you're not recommending a program that's going to take them five buses to get to, right? You recommend (laughs) the closer one, right? Um, But stuff like that just totally makes sense. And it's a win-win. I just don't see any movement yet from the payers. Maybe it is happening. I just don't know about it, but I hope that it does.
0: Well, I just think back, man, it must have been five or more years ago with our friend Mandy Bishop, who was so passionate about this five plus years ago, and she was working on the solutions. And, and, there, you know, she obviously saw the disconnect of payers not doing this, but wanting to do it. And, you know, it wasn't clear to me, you know, we should reach out to to Mandy now at Gartner, but, uh, you know, like, you know, to understand why isn't this playing out? Because you're exactly right. The payers need to do this. And I think they understand they need to as well, but I think there's some operational challenges that make it hard for them to do it, which is the same for healthcare organizations. If I'm a healthcare organization in my priority list, where does SDOH sit? If I haven't moved to value-based care, it doesn't sit very high. No, no, you're exactly right.
1: Hey, John, listen, we're at the end of another episode, but this was fun exploring this sort of I'll call it the B side of the of the uh, of inner of interoperability. We normally talk about the A side uh, a lot, you know, uh, clinical interoperability. But today we explored operational data and pricing information. So
0: and the summary is more open is better. More open <laughs> is better,
1: and let's not wait for the government to force us to do it. Oh, hallelujah! <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks to all of you who tuned in to this episode of Healthcare IT today. Find more details about our show by clicking the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com. And please share your voice and engage with the community at healthcareittoday.com as well as on Twitter using the hashtag #HITSM. I'm Colin Hung with my friend and health IT collaborator John Lee. Thanks for listening. And have a great week.